Hey, welcome to the podcast. I'm Rich Mellon. And today we are doing a remote podcast with one of our very good friends who's very big in the fur industry. And she is back east, well, east of us, central in Canada. Uh, I have Sandy with me. Sandy, introduce our, our guest. So we have Mary Schellenberg with us today. And, uh, and we met Mary a number of years ago. Um, she is uh, very, very skilled in the fur industry and we're very pleased to have you with us today mary thanks so much for joining well thanks so much for the invitation so i thought we would maybe just start um with you know where did you grow up where were you born and and uh have you always been part of the fur industry okay well Actually, no, definitely not. I grew up outside Montreal on a, I guess you'd call it a hobby farm of about 20 acres. Uh, went to school in, in so-called town. Um, and uh, my dad had goats and chickens and ducks and that kind of thing. But he worked at the Agricultural College, which is McDonald, which was part of McGill. Um I went to school in town, like I say, all all the time, and I actually went for a couple of years at the college as well. Uh, I would say the only interaction I had with uh, any fur-bearing animals at that time was seeing a muskrat frozen in a pond one time when I was skating, <laughs> and um, raccoons that liked to harass my dad's uh, chickens and ducks. Oh, that's kind of cool. So, um, you grew up then, as you say, on, on a hobby farm and, uh, a, you know, interaction obviously with domestic, uh, stock. Then how did, apart from the frozen muskrat and the harassing raccoons, how did you find your way into the fur industry? Well, uh, once I finally, uh, flapped my wings and left, uh, Montreal Island, I headed west and was uh, traveling with uh, friends of mine who were actually from Newfoundland. And we settled in Winnipeg. And I got a job here right away, not in the fur industry. I worked with Jostens, the uh, yearbook and ring people. But while I was there, I worked with a, an individual. And he left that business. And then he phoned me up after I had also left there to have my, my first girl and asked if I would do some data entry for him. So I said, sure, I, you know, if I can work it into my schedule of, you know, babysitters and such like. So next thing I know, here I, here I was doing data entry for Dominion Sudak fur auction. And, oh, wow. uh, so that, that's, how, how that's where that started. That, Mary? Pardon? Uh, how many years ago was that? Uh, Nineteen eighty-eight is when I I started there. Wow! So I mean, I knew I still didn't know anything about fur then. I, uh, you know, data entry was what I was doing for them. I had no clue. The only thing was when I first went there, they gave me a tour of the building, um, which was here in Winnipeg, and. Uh, I was absolutely shocked by the number of beaver pelts that were in the building at the time. As I recall, there was a couple of floors with stacks of beaver pelts from the floor to the ceiling. And I'm like, 
is there any left in nature? I mean, did you can take them all? <laughs> but uh, that was back in the days when beaver was still still worthwhile. Worth a lot of money. Um, yes, some money. Yeah, I think I think about that time was probably around forty forty five dollar average. Wow, we'd we'd love those days again. <laughs> yes, we would. <laughs> so. The progression from there, the Dominion got bought, or did you move into a, a, with another company? No, I okay. So I stayed with Dominion Sudak on a very casual basis for the first couple of years, and gradually learned different things in their in their procedures in their office. And during that time, of course, Hudson Bay took over, and then shortly thereafter, that became North American Fur Auctions. So I worked for oh, the three okay. different companies. And gradually learned a bit more about the about the fur industry, about the fur, because we oftentimes hired casual people to do jobs, you know, whether it was counting skins or that kind of thing. And on occasion, they'd leave for lunch and not come back. So <laughs> here, here I was in my dress clothes, you know, high heels going and helping out on the muskrat floor or with the squirrels, with the weasels, uh, any number of things. So I got a little bit more acclimatized to it all and then uh, gradually dealt with it, dealt with some of the trappers a bit more. I hadn't up until that point. I, you know, I knew the names. I just didn't know who they were. And then uh, in, uh, I believe it was 99, uh, they downsized our Winnipeg operation substantially. And because I knew all the the office routines and how all that went and all the advances and postings and things like that, I ended up staying to basically run the office while all the grading, most of the grading and everything left to go to Toronto. Well, oh. the, fir the first thing I had to do was give an advance on some Fisher. And I'm like, I don't even know what I'm looking at. But <laughs> you'd be surprised how fast you learn. And really? uh, it's, evol that, it's evolved since then. So you ended up handling a lot of fur then? You, you, you would actually grade fur? I wasn't. No, I wasn't grading. I was, I, I mean, when you have to do advances, you have to know, kind of have a good, a good idea of what you're looking at as far as value is concerned. Right. So, so that's that's in in the rough definition that's a great you're grading it. Uh, somewhat, Good, yeah. Yeah, okay. Not not a, not a conclusive grading, but certainly enough to know good from bad and and those kind of things and over time because I've just done so much of it 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 comes fairly easily. Oh, that's fascinating. I I I didn't know. I mean I wanted to I wanted to hear the story how how this happened. So you ended up then having the, to be a, a, basically a, a, a one-woman shop in, in Winnipeg, right? I mean, it wasn't just myself, but yeah, um, there was only a few of us here then. And uh, yeah, shipping, receiving, you name it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so what what is your best terrible shipping story? <laughs> uh, no, I, I can't say those things. No, it, it's no. not good. <laughs> uh, I can imagine that there were there, there is a, a a very 
huge range in, in the quality of put up and, and dryness and pelts and that sort of stuff that gets shipped to you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, actually, in, in that in that regard, I, I had a gentleman bring in um, some fur the other day, and he had a wolf that he'd done up. And I I went to take a look at it because he said it was the nicest one he'd had in, from his area. And I pick up the, the uh, paws, and they're all wet. So I said, uh, what's, it's not dry yet. Well, he said, I put salt in there. And mm -hmm. I said, yeah, you did, but they're just sopping wet because the salt absorbs the moisture, but stays wet. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was, I was busy digging salt out of those paws the other day. Wow. I, I was fascinated. Uh, I spoke to you back in, in the summertime there and we were talking about the, the price of castor is up so high. And I, I'd always been told that, you know, you had to make sure your caster was so dry before you send it. That. And then you told me that it didn't matter where, where the caster came from or what it looked like. You always you always set it out for three days to dry before it was uh, it was classified or, or, or graded or anything. Oh, some, sometimes even longer than that. Um, I mean, the caster, when it comes in, we always open it up. We put it on like a drying rack of sorts um, because oftentimes they're, they come in frozen. I mean, they've been dried previously, but they're frozen, so there's a little bit too much moisture there. So we'll right. we'll put them on those drying racks, and they'll wait there till we're ready to grade them. So, how do you grade a cast? How do you grade a caster, Mary? Okay, not not something I do, but generally the the um, what we call the first grader, the number one grade, uh, is a as a full caster sack. Um, I I know they have a a formula for weight. If it's over a certain weight, it's definitely number one. The the second grade is a not as full, but you know still there's a fair amount of of the caster material in them. And then of course we have the third grade, which is the shell, which is basically exactly that shell, but still usable by either in the different the different people who are buying it either in for perfume or for lure or for medicinal purposes. Yeah, I, I, I found the easiest way to think about it is if you thought about a kid's uh, rubber toy balloon, when it's empty and flat, that's a shell. When it's partially filled, that's that's a number two. And when it's full and plump the way it should be, that's a number one. Yeah. So how much caster would would, would have gone through your, your operation in, in a year? Um, well, I would say uh, quite a lot of years ago, in fact, probably back in the late 90s, we were dealing with around probably six or 7,000 pounds at least. Um, wow. Or if, if not more. Uh, and, that's, and of course, that's when the beaver were worth quite a bit of money. Now, because the beaver is still so low, the, the amount that we're getting is, is, you know, you'd be lucky to get 2,000 pounds in a year. And yet demand is higher now for caster than it's ever been, right? Uh, I would it, it certainly in my experience, it is. Yes. And what are they using caster for? Well, like I said, it, it's definitely still going in the perfume industry. That is a, they are a big uh, consumer. And uh, then also I've, I have sold to individuals who are using it for medicinal purposes they're naturopaths and and things like that, and they're they're using it in their different medicines. 
Is that is beaver castor part of an indigenous um, medicine? Do you know, or or is it oh, mostly natural? Historically, it was historically it was definitely a medicinal uh, thing that they would have used. Oh, very cool, though. I we uh, the only reason I ask is we're going to go over and visit uh, a fellow that we met this winter, um, and he's going to show me some of the indigenous um, remedies that he he has. So, beaver caster is probably in there. I would think so. Yes, and I know in some of the ceremonial. Uh happenings they also use it for that i'm not exactly sure in what manner but on occasion we'll have a somebody from the community indigenous community come in and ask if if they can have some beaver caster well okay back in the day when the price was low we didn't mind to give them a pound or two but now they don't get much (laughs) yeah well what's what's number one averaging a pound right now uh so i in talking with uh, Don Rumford from Fur Harvesters in North Bay, um, we feel that we should be able to get somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 a pound U.S. Wow. Wow. For, for number one. That is, Which is, that it, is it, awesome. It's, it's incredibly high. That's quite the demand, and it's not being filled. Do you, I, I know this isn't your purview, but do you know what they use the cast, what part of the caster? Is it, is it the scent or is it the oil? Okay, as far as I know in the perfume industry, the, the caster is somehow reduced to a resin. And, and then they use it in, in their perfume that way. But of course, it, what it does for the perfume is it makes that scent last. Oh. Boy, and it, well, it, it, it basically good, it enhances huh? <laughs> anything that it's in. <laughs> what women will do to smell good. <laughs> I don't think it's just women. Men wear cologne. No, not real men. <laughs> <laughs> Some should. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Ouch. Ouch. <laughs> so... Eventually, then, uh, if I understand correctly, you uh, ran the warehouse for NAFA in Winnipeg. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how big of a, f- of a facility was that? Um, about we have about five thousand square feet here or so, and we would consolidate the shipments from the west and then ship them on to Toronto for the auction. Okay. Um, can I ask some of the numbers, like? How many coyotes would come out of the West in a in a in a year average year or a good year? Well, um I would say that in a in a good year, uh we didn't handle them all through here because we simply didn't have the space. So a lot of our agents would be shipping directly to Toronto and you know, I'd say Saskatchewan probably in the last few years was averaging at least you know, probably 12,000 coyotes a sale. And then, of course, Alberta with their good numbers, probably close to that. Um, and Manitoba, <clears throat> excuse me, not a huge producer, but they added another few thousand anyway. Right, right. So that's, that's a, a, lot of, a lot of coyotes for each and every sale. 
Mm-hmm. What was the the uh, fur that was the most common? Well, these these days it is definitely coyotes, uh, and and for Manitoba, the the marten or sable is is um, usually a big number as well because of course when you're trapping you can get quite a few at at a time, right? So that's that has generally for the last few years has been the the big numbers. Of course, back when I first started, uh, obviously beaver was. I think in those days, probably coyotes were only worth fifteen bucks. Yeah, I, I do remember coyotes being. You know, if you got twenty or thirty dollars for a coyote, that was unbelievable money. Mm-hmm. And what about muskrat, Mary? Where did they kind of fall in? Okay, so back and quite a number of years ago. Muskrat production was really good, you know, across the prairies. Uh, we would get, you know, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, maybe 20,000 at least. But the last number of years that production has fallen right off, not because of price necessarily, but just because there seems to be no muskrats. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We have no or, shortage or of them here. Few. Yeah. Right. Pardon? I say we have no shortage of them here. Oh, okay. Yeah. But well, Saskatchewan we, we, and uh, they, we, they have had drought for a number of years. And, of course, that doesn't work well for muskrats come wintertime. So. That's true. We've also, um, we've this year we're seeing more muskrat push-ups in some of the smaller bodies of water that we haven't seen them in for two or three years. So. You never know if there's just been a big population and they got a disease or or something like that, and um, and maybe that was part of it. But um, do you find that price does enter into it? I mean, we talked about beaver and and that we, um, there's not as many beaver now. The price isn't as good for the for the pelt itself, although the the caster still pays money. And then now with Coyote, the prices are great, and so the numbers are up. So, do you do you find that muskrat is kind of like that? Oh, the muskrat prices sort of stayed the same, but I mean, in in other articles, it it definitely seems to make a a big difference. I I did a talk one time in Saskatchewan at one of their conventions, and my my ending sentence every time was, "You guys are in it for the money," and. Right. Uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't, not necessarily for everybody, but it certainly is um, a deciding factor for many of the trappers when they know what kind of money they're going to have to spend to get whichever whichever species they're going after. And then they'll say, yeah, I'm not going to bother. It is a, an odd uh, commodity because there are no futures in it, right? You know, mm -hmm. like uh, if you're going to produce oil next year, you already know what futures are for for June oil next year, right? That, that kind of thing, right? And, and yeah, the commodities is that way, and this and this is one where uh, our our futures are going to be set here in in a month in the, at fur harvesters. You know what I mean? That's that's going to going to set what the prices are for this year, but it's all it's all after the animals have been caught and processed and everything else. It, well, I I keep telling guys it's a crapshoot. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you roll the dice when you see what happens it's i guess i guess trappers as a whole are gamblers probably 
Speaking of trappers, you must, must have met some characters over the years. Oh, definitely many. And, and, and I will say this for trappers as a whole, that as a community, they are second to none as a group of people. Down to earth, um, interesting to talk to. I, I'm always intrigued by what they're seeing when they're out on the line. Their observations, I call them scientists sometimes, you know, researchers. Right. All those things. But yes, I have met some, definitely some characters in the industry. <laughs> Does anybody particularly stick out for being a good well, storyteller? Well, I mean, there's or... one fellow out of uh, Alberta who, uh, he's pretty good with a knife, when, especially when it comes to beaver. And he, he would be one of those characters. Yes, I, uh, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> I figured you might. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we we've we've shown uh, his knife work uh, on on one of uh, the Trapping Inc. episodes, and he is right. uh, it it is it gets uh, all kinds of uh, of comments. I mean, it's it's one of those things. Like, I mean, you you know, some people are really good at playing a, a violin, and other people, you know, are are uh, concert. Uh, uh, violinists and then there's the other ones who are who are the prodigies and and he's he's a prodigy when it when it comes down to uh his ability with a knife and i've watched him and when i've filmed him i've i've filmed him skinning beaver and i can take they're like there are the same amount of strokes with the knife for each part of the beaver you know so so many strokes are going around the left leg so many strokes going around the right leg and i've taken a part because there would be people talking in the background, and so I've taken it apart and taken out one 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 piece and put in a piece from another beaver, and you would never know that that, that it wasn't all all one beaver. That's that's how precise he is with a knife, you know. Another guy summed it up. I think Gordy summed it up when he said, uh, "There's country music, and then there's Garth Brooks." You know. <laughs> well, this is true. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, we know lots of trappers in Alberta, as as you know, we've we've met you here at the rendezvous many times, but um, we we don't know as many trappers over in the Manitoba and Eastern. So, is there? Have you? Uh, do you encounter trappers out that way, or from Ontario, or or do you kind of well, end I, I, where? Most, mostly I'm dealing with trappers from Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and BC. Um, because I go to conventions or, or have, I, I've get, I get to meet them all personally, right? Meet their families, uh, get to know who they really are. And, and I, I'd say that's one of the best parts of my job. I, I have made some fabulous friends in, that are all part of the trapping community. Oh, I, I I agree. I love the rendezvous, the conventions, and that. I mean, it is, it is like one giant family. Like anybody says, you know, what what are what are trappers like? I said, well, they're you know they're like carpenters, they're like like uh, doctors. Like I mean, any any slice of of uh, population you want to take out of out of civilization, you know, you're going to have some good, some good, and some bad, right? But when it seems like the ones that come together at at those conventions and that, it's all just one one huge family, and it is so enjoyable. 
And I, I, I forget who it was, but he said, where else would you get together where all these kids would be running around everywhere? With a pocket knife. Yeah, with, <laughs> with, a, with a pocket knife. And he said, he said, and a sharp one. And we expect him to cut something with it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the best part of rendezvous. And maybe that's where we should go next. But I, they are such a family affair. You know, I mean, you go to a lot of other conventions, um, you know, for, for whatever type of industry that you might be in and children don't really feature very highly in in any of that and yet you know particularly uh the alberta choppers rendezvous the kids are are all are all about getting involved and the and the parents want them involved so i was just (laughs) wondering then you know do you do you see that theme um with a number of different conventions and rendezvous that you attend uh, I would I would have to give uh, kudos to Alberta for probably uh, uh, directing their attention to that whole youth thing. Although I will say that Saskatchewan and uh, and BC as well are are trying really hard. It's difficult as as the trapping community is aging. There there seems to be less and less children involved. Um, I don't know if it's a time factor for the younger families. Uh, not too sure. Uh, I know in Manitoba they struggle to get uh, a lot of, of youth at their events. Here, here in our building, uh, we get a, we get a fairly large walk-in trade, as we like to call it, and they'll come as a family. So I'll have the little kids here as well as the teenagers and everything, and we we are very happy to see that. So tell me, with all of these, uh, you know, you, you keep talking about the four provinces that, that, that you deal with trappers and that from. Are there differences in how things are done? Like, can you tell for a put up from a from a Manitoba trapper as compared to an Alberta trapper? Or, or, or are there anything like that? Or are we pretty universal? I, I think over time it is. Um, it's uh, I think there's been a lot more education as far as that is concerned. So you're going to find great uh, guys who are just fabulous at fur handling in all provinces. You're also going to find the people who just don't seem to have that knack or or even care to. Uh, we try here when they come in here, if there's stuff they've done wrong, we try and, you know, give them pointers on what they could do to improve. Then you get the guy who does a great job, comes in and says, what am I doing wrong? And you have to tell them nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes, I mean, it, it comes down to, and I say it many, many times, but um, that fur is as good as it's ever going to get by the time I've caught it. You know, like all I can do from there mm-hmm. is, is harm it. You know, I mean, what I want to be is 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 harm neutral and, and uh, you know, not damage it, putting it up. But what are some of the big um, errors that you see or or mistakes that people make? Uh, I, I think, I mean, a lot of times with, uh, especially with some of the, uh, yeah, perhaps some of the younger ones, and I shouldn't say that, even some of the older ones who refuse to change their ways, uh, you'll get, a, you know, skins with, you know, too much fat left on them or, or, or done, done the wrong way. So raccoon, which should be a leather out article is done with the fur out. Now, Leather out, it might have been a great grade, a really good grade, but but because it's been done fur out, that grade is down right away. 
those kind of things those kind of things can definitely hurt uh, hurt a guy's returns okay just uh, to in, just to interrupt you and we'll come back to other mistakes but can you tell me why some animals are are leather out i don't um something i've i've been asked and i, I wasn't sure of okay in in certain in certain animals so you the muskrat the raccoon the mink uh otter and what yeah the otter a lot can be uh you can tell a lot on the quality of the of the animal and the imperfections by looking at the leather it, far more than if just looking at the fur if you were looking at an otter that had had uh, trap big trap marks on the leather if it was fur out you wouldn't necessarily see that so and, why and do we those, do any those of the kind of things can can make it slip when it gets tanned oh okay so, so you need to see the leather on those articles Okay, but so it's not the same then for a marten or a fisher or a coyote. No, no. Okay, so then there's not a chance of them slipping at that spot. Is that well? I suppose it could happen, but you'll usually see on on the longer hair ones, like like a marten, you'll see you may see problems. It may already be slipping, but um, a fisher, you'll definitely see if there's a snare mark on there. Same on a coyote. Okay. You'll see it in the fur. Okay, I was I was always curious why why there was just a handful of of the short ones. People were saying it was because they were so greasy. You know that 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 was the best way to you know to in case the more uh, oil oozed out of them o over the time, it wasn't uh, inside where it could go rancid or whatever. And none of that really made sense to me. But I I see what you're talking about now. What other mistakes were were uh, do people make? Uh, I mean, you'll run across people who put animals on the wrong size board. Um, I, I suppose in the long run, it doesn't end up really, it could hurt them because maybe, maybe they won't get the size that it should be. Uh, definitely in the beaver, when the guy uses six nails, uh, <laughs> he'll get downsized, he'll get downsized right away. For sure. I know, uh, one of the fellows that was uh, receiving at uh, at the Alberta Trappers Association store showed us uh, muskrats one time, and and uh, they had been pulled over top of a of an asphalt shingle. <laughs> oh and, no! Well, you know, when I was a kid, we made stretchers for squirrels and weasels and muskrats and that from cedar shingles, right? Mm -hmm. And. And I don't know what I I can only suppose that somebody told him to make it, to make a stretcher out of out of a, a shingle and he <laughs> took that to mean an asphalt shingle. I don't I don't know that anybody's got those those hides off yet, so <laughs> <laughs> so eventually when and this was the first time I ran into you was I don't know, half a dozen years ago. Um, you were the person that everybody went to. If there if there was anything wrong in the world that had to do with fur and, and NAFA, you talked to Mary. <laughs> that's that's how I found you. Uh, I'd been dealing with uh, one of your um, coworkers, Dave Buick, and he was he'd set up uh, helped me set up my account. And and I don't know for whatever reason we're we're remote. We're out here in the in the sticks and that. And whatever reason, uh, I had problems. And and he helped, and and uh, it didn't go any be better. So he says, "Here, talk to Mary. She'll get it straight." <laughs> and you became the person that, that 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 could answer everything and and anything. While 
pretty much running the place, right? Well, yeah. I mean, when Dave was still working here, I was, um, I guess I was his right arm at times. So then when he finally retired or, you know, retired, then I, I just took over. That's good. But, That's uh, good. I, I've always wanted to, uh, you know, if a guy's having problems with something, I, I want to help. Well, and that, that, that shows in your attitude. Uh, so we recently had a massive earthquake within the, the fur world with NAFA um, going into receivership. And uh, I just got a letter, I think, yesterday, the day before. They're, they're still trying to do a restructure in that. And that ended their, them dealing in, in wild fur and, and kind of and put you out of a job. You ended up then... Uh, doing what you'd been doing for NAFA, but now you're doing it for Fur Harvesters Auction for, for Western Canada, correct? That's correct. Uh, when when I uh, saw that my, my position with NAFA was quickly coming to an end, um, I decided I didn't like the Titanic, so... <laughs> I jumped. I well, I jumped. I don't know if I, if I jumped or I got pushed, but uh, <laughs> I did approach for harvesters and suggest that it would be to their benefit to take over the the Winnipeg location as as their central location for the West. We, you know, we already knew the trappers. Uh, we we knew the the process for most everything, and it seemed the most logical to help for harvesters and also to help the trappers to continue to have places to market their fur. And, you know, with trappers, um, a lot, like you say, are getting older and that to, to be able to talk to Mary, <laughs> whether you were talking in, to, at uh, NAFA or to uh, now Mary at, at fur harvesters, that's a very important thing that that's a, a huge confidence builder. And with the, you know, the shakeup well, that's happened, you know, there's, yes, there's, I, I have to say, it was it was it has been humbling for me the number of people that have expressed their gratitude for me take you know continuing on in the fur industry and continuing on with fur harvesters they don't feel like they've been abandoned too badly well when nafa was hitting the rocks and 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 the ship was looking in bad shape and and you were either jumping or or, or getting pushed sandy and i were talking about you and and saying, you know, Sandy says, I sure hope Mary's okay. I, I, I sure hope. And then, uh, you know, I talked with, with Mark afterwards and he said, you know, that he'd hired you and, and, uh, and that you just got half of Canada and, and he got half the headaches. <laughs> Life was pretty good for him. He was so happy to, to have you uh, at Fur Harvesters. So well, Mary, I, uh, I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm glad that I'm now part of their team. Yeah, I can well imagine it's, um, it's different, but similar in so many ways that, you know, you're, I don't know whether your office is exactly the same, but you, at least you're in the same building. So how many people would be employed um, where you're located? Okay. So uh, traditionally it's been for the last number of years, it's been myself. And then I had, uh, I'd had two seasonal workers. Um uh, usually from October till about the end of June. And because at that time we were still grading the uh, ermine and squirrels here, I also had two graders that came in to do that. Now we, I will, I will, there'll be myself as well as 
three seasonal workers um, because fur harvesters uh, in their efforts to, I, I think, streamline and make things move well is we're going to be drumming and grading the Western coyotes here. Wow. Oh, okay. So that didn't happen before then, is that correct? Ha that hasn't happened. Well, we haven't graded coyotes since 99 in Winnipeg, but we we were drumming up until I think 2006, I believe, or seven. Okay. So um, this is in the same, is it about 5,000 square feet, you said, the, the space that well, you're a little, in? a little bit. It, that, yeah, we're. I mean, we're in the exact same space. I didn't have to change where I drove my car to or where I parked <laughs> or where I sit. <laughs> well, you know, there's something to be said for familiarity, right? This is true. Yeah. So here we are um, post the Titanic going down. We're looking at our first auction coming up. Uh, when what, What's actual dates of uh, Fur Harvester's first auction this year? Uh, March 28th to the 31st. Okay. And it's going to be the biggest one for harvesters has ever had? I do believe so. Okay. Are you getting big, uh, big turnout as far as people sending fur in? Or you really just started picking up a week or so ago, didn't you? That's true. This, this past week has been uh, quite busy. Um, prior to that, it was kind of slow. But... Uh, Thursday, Friday, and then I couldn't believe the number of people that came in today because we've actually been having a bit of a snowstorm here and the roads are horrible, but still they were coming in from the north, the south, the east, the west. So and, you actually and bringing have people, in their fur. People actually Pardon? come right, right to your building and, and drop fur off. Absolutely, yes. How do you ever get anything done? I mean, every trapper out there is like so ready to talk to somebody for a day or two. <laughs> uh, this is sometimes an issue. Yes. <laughs> do you find now this year with NAFA not being in the business um, any longer, or at least currently, are you dealing with more fur buyers now or are you dealing with the same with the same people that you've dealt with before? Okay, so I mean, what I mean, obviously, uh, you, I'm you're well aware that um, the American company Groenwald Fur has has moved into Western Canada, and is they are definitely uh, buying quite a bit. But uh, from what I can see now, I think that we're we're uh, doing probably better than I expected, as far as numbers. It's difficult when you've worked for a company that has now has a tainted reputation and you wonder if it's tainted your own reputation, but it, it seems like not. They seem quite happy to come in here and many, many, many of them have never shipped to fur harvesters. So this is a first for them. Oh, and, I know. We have. They, but they're, they're okay with it. Well, we, we fielded a, a ton of, uh, questions like how do we set up an account or whatever and and i talked mm -hmm. with mark and he said just send it in and uh we'll set up the accounts when they when they get here you know and mm -hmm. i tell people that and they they do it they just do it you know i mean there's a lot of trust i think still of people you know despite uh you know reputation of a lot of trappers that 
um, you know, they, they kind of live in the bush all winter and they don't talk to people and they're, and they're a bit suspicious. I, I think when they, when they trust people and someone says, this is what you should do, then they do it. And I, I, obviously they trust you, Mary. And, and if you're at fur harvesters, that has to be one of the biggest things that, that keeps the confidence up in the trappers. Yes, I, I, I mean, again, uh, it's humbling. It's very humbling, but I, I appreciate that support very much. So with the fur buyers, though, like it's just exploded. We went from, well, you, Mary, you would have known every fur buyer in Alberta by name and you would have counted them on one hand two years ago, right? <laughs> True. Mm-hmm. And, and, and now, you know, I mean, uh, I ran out of uh, hands and toes and, and everything else. And I get there. There's 30 or 40 different people that are advertising. They're buying fur now. But most of that fur is going to end up right back at the auction, isn't it? Uh, I think with with some of it, those, those uh, obviously it's the coyote that 99 percent of them are after. Yeah. Uh, that. That won't see. That won't probably make it to the auction. That's going to. They probably have private buyers for it already. Really, I would imagine so. And then, and then, uh, but a lot of the uh, maybe some of the other goods that which they don't have a market for, those may end up at the auction. I was thinking that you know a lot of them were, were were buying coyote just strictly to you know send them back through the auction. And if they made 20 or 30 bucks per, per coyote, that they, they were happy with it. Oh, some, some of the, some of the smaller ones may be doing that. I mean, over the last, the last number of years with the high coyote prices, the, the, the private buyers that were uh, dealing in Alberta, especially where you, you are more used to them than certainly Saskatchewan or Manitoba was. Um, they all had private markets for most of, most of the coyotes. Okay. Okay. Grunewald uh, has, uh, they do a lot of direct sell, uh, sales net to, to China and that, don't they? Yes, they do. Yeah. So I had a question about the auctions, Mary. Have you ever been able to attend um, when you were with NAFA an auction? Yeah, I actually, uh, this last May, the May sale, I was actually there. I, I've so, been to a few, but that was the latest one was this this last May. So tell us a little bit about because we've never been to one, and I and I doubt very much that many of our listeners or or any or very many trappers have actually attended an auction. So, what does it look like? How is it? Um, how is it organized? And uh, and what do you expect when you go to an auction? Well, I mean, it, I mean, an auction's an auction, right? But Normally, you'd have somebody up front there with whatever the article is, you know, auctioning it off right on uh, right on stage. Whereas when it comes to the fur, uh, after it's been graded, they pull out samples of of each grade, and the buyers when they go there, they go prior to the sale. They have a catalog with with uh, strictly numbers, right? It and a bit of description in it. And they say, oh, I want to see the sample for this particular lot. So somebody will go and get them that sample. They can take a look at it. They make, usually they make notes in their catalog. And then when it comes time for selling, then they're, 
sitting in the auction room uh, with their catalog in front of them. They they don't have to see the goods. They've already seen them and they will they'll bid accordingly. Uh, okay, so that um then is there I think as I understand it anyway that certain um certain fur is auctioned on certain days uh, organized and according to I don't know whether it's um the quantity or whether it's when buyers are going to be there uh and then I think wild fur was at a different time than the ranched fur too correct yes that, that that I mean when it came to North American fur auctions they would they would um establish an or what they call an order of sale uh not necessarily based on the uh, quantity so much as where did it best fit and yeah and who's coming to buy it we better make sure they're here right so you you kind of work it that way as well yeah some because some fur really has niche markets doesn't it yes like uh, like north american would uh, had i believe we were putting the the martin and the fisher in with some of the ranch mink that it that it went well with and that's kind of where it was sold. Um, a lot of the other, the wild fur would be, you know, in a, a two-day event kind of thing. Yeah, I was told once that the, the major buyer for otter fur is Tibet. And that it, it, it struck me as so odd. And I never got to follow up with the guy. And I, so I don't know whether it's really true or not, but it stuck with me for, you know, I heard this a couple of years ago. And that that was why, uh, you know, there was only certain sales that uh, that otter actually sold on. It was because if Tibet showed up or not. True or not? Uh, I don't think that's quite true. Uh, the way I understand, and this is when otter was, you know, $150, $200 a piece. Um, the Chinese were buying it. And in and until the point where the Dalai Lama said that otter were an endangered species. However, he was not talking about river otter. He was talking about sea otter. And it, precisely after he made that announcement that the following sale, we couldn't get a hand up to buy an otter. Right. And and the Dal Dalai Lama is from, from Tibet. Uh, you right. know, they, I believe they use, they, it's a kind of a ceremonial dress as well there. Right. Like it, it, they they had a huge market for it. That's fascinating because uh, the river otter in North America is the only otter species that is trapped in the world. Uh, I mean, other than you do have some indigenous that can trap the the sea otter uh, in Alaska, mm -hmm. but other than that, the only the only one in, in the world is the river otter in North America. Right. Um, when it comes to auctions, Mary, what what would surprise people about what goes on behind the scenes? Hmm, I'm not sure what goes behind goes on behind <laughs> the scenes. <laughs> no, I I mean, uh, like I say, it's pretty straightforward for the most part. Most of the buyers that are coming to an auction have a fairly good idea of what they're what they're looking for. Sometimes, and I know in the really good years, we would have we would have Chinese buyers at the sale who had no idea what they were buying and would pay ridiculous prices for them. 
Really? Uh, that didn't happen too often. Usually after the first year, they got it figured out, but. And never to one of the one of the lots that my fur was in. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know those kind, and and I mean, I think it's, uh, I think it's probably difficult as an auctioneer, and and I'm not speaking from any experience, but to, uh, you know, kind of know your know your audience, know your product, you know, get the mood going, and 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 keep things going. So I, I think some I know sometimes in Toronto they would have issues and the buyers would sort of gang up on the auctioneer, so would make it difficult. <laughs> so you had just started then uh, receiving fur, uh, what a, a week ago, two weeks? How long? Oh, well, how I've been I mean, no, I've been I actually. When the whenever trapping season started, we've been we've been getting a bid in all the time. But this, of course, because the last receiving date is actually published as tomorrow, uh, you know, it's been pretty frantic this week. So you're going to have now tens of thousands of skins show up over the next uh, week worth of, of shipping or so. I would think so. So the. Um, I, although I believe the, the way we've got it worked out is the, the, all our Western agents as like Alberta trappers, trapper gourds, uh, they, they will be shipping us just the coyotes and I believe everything else is going to go to North Bay. Oh, okay. Okay. So do you have much, uh, U.S. trappers sending you fur this year? Okay, so the U.S. stuff is handled through the the Wisconsin, and that was the same with NAFA. The U.S. stuff was handled through Wisconsin, so oh. the the person that runs that show will probably be shipping the the Western coyotes from, say, Montana and and North Dakota. Probably ship them up to us here in Winnipeg, and we'll grade them into in along with the uh, Canadian ones. It's amazing the difference between a, a western coyote and an eastern coyote. Uh, yeah, they I, hardly look related. No, exactly, and, and uh, I think I know where the term brush wolf come from because the the eastern coyote is so big and so coarse. It's so different than our than our western coyote, you know. And usually, we like to brag on everything being bigger out west here, but <laughs> this is one time no. where it's not a good thing. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> true. I I I I, I got to admit that the uh, the eastern coyote doesn't win any uh, beauty pageants. No, <laughs> and they get some some unbelievably strange colors too. Like those black coyotes, they get they 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 they're not attractive. Not when you're used to what a what a coyote looks like, right? Or or what what you used to put it that way. I guess if that's what, if that's what, uh, coyotes were always black where you came from, then that's what you're used to, right? They. They have black coyotes in BC too. Really? They huh. have had, yes. Yep. I guess you guys would you guys would see it all. <laughs> what um do you have any message that you would like to say to trappers sending you fur now or or you know getting ready for for your auction or is there anything you you'd like to see them do differently or any questions that you know common questions you get you'd like to answer? Uh, well, I mean, I guess the most common is uh, they want to know about uh, 
registering and all that. And uh, I'm just going to ask them to be patient while we handle a, uh, you know, a much larger volume of paperwork than what fur harvesters was used to. And for me, it's a little different because, of course, the whole the whole data entry system is entirely different. And uh, it's going to take me a little while to get used to that as well. But we will get it done. And uh, I've told a lot of guys if they want to know their account number, probably they should wait till about the end of uh, end of January and we should be caught up. Okay. Okay. And you have a, a website that uh, you want to send people to? Well, they can go to furharvesters.com. That, that, uh, that most of the information there is there that they need. Okay. Um, agents and pickup schedules and, and those kind of things, as well as the terms and conditions. And I believe you can download the pelt handling manual that they provide. Right. Yeah. They do, they do have really nice, uh, a real nice manual and, and, uh, uh, nice measurements and pictures. I, I, I enjoy their stuff. So, um, how is your really own nice website? Yeah, yeah. How how is your own uh, old trapper Mel doing there? Uh, well, he's pretty busy putting up uh, fur for people and still building boards. And yeah, he'll be happy when I go home today because I sold a bunch more. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think I don't think there's many days when Mel isn't happy. <laughs> well, we'll let, we we will let you uh, go, Mary. We appreciate you taking time in what has to be the craziest point of your whole year, perhaps maybe even your decade, uh, to come talk to us here uh, on the on the podcast, and uh, we we truly appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mary. Well, it's really you. been good to have you here. Okay, thank you both. Uh, you are great uh, ambassadors, I think, and uh, terrific comedians. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's sad to say that I think most of that comes naturally. <laughs> thank you, Mary. Take care, and, okay. and thanks, everybody, Good. for listening. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.